Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for being here. Today, we want to kick off a series of discussions with people who came to America or whose families came here as refugees. Now, we talk about immigrants all the time, and uh, this country welcomes immigrants all the time. But refugees fit into a very special category of immigrant. These are people who are fleeing awful and really horrific conditions around the globe. And if you look at the news these days, you see that all over the globe, there are countries really wrestling with the question of what to do with people who arrive on their shores as refugees. Uh, If you go to the Mediterranean Sea these days, for instance, you may find very uh, clapboard, put together uh, boats coming across from Africa, taking people to Europe. If you go to Syria, of course, you see hundreds and hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people leaving because there's a war there and they are seeking just a space to live their lives. Historically, America has had a a very welcoming attitude toward refugees. We don't just let everybody in. That's never happened. But there has always been an attitude that people who are seeking asylum uh, from war, from political persecution, from things of that nature, have a place here in America. And I want to say something else as well. When you think about the places that people are fleeing around the globe, I think you also have to think about U.S. foreign policy. How many of these people are fleeing places where we are involved, where we may be the cause of the strife that's sending them fleeing over the border, where we may at least play a role in the conditions that are causing that? President Trump said last week that he wanted to change the way the United States deals with refugees, that he wants to put a ban on refugees from places like Syria, where we took in some 10,000 people last year because they're fleeing the war. A lot of people say that's about security. A lot of people say that is about keeping Americans safe. A lot of other people, though, believe that this is a changing, a fundamental changing of the way we think of ourselves as Americans and the way we think of our our place in the world. And so we wanted to start talking directly to the people who are affected by this. We really want to dig deep into why they were forced to leave their homes, what motivated them to come here to the United States, and what their lives look like now. If you've ever met someone who's a refugee or is related to a refugee, I think you know of the uh, effusive gratefulness that, that comes across. The idea that there was an opportunity somewhere on the globe to live your life the way you want to without fear of war or political persecution. But I want the listeners here to hear these stories, to talk with people who are fleeing awful conditions around the globe and see America as a beacon of opportunity and hope. And, of course, we want to hear what their reactions are to what President Trump is doing. Do they feel less welcome in this country now because of what's happened? 
Are they fearful for their relatives or friends back home who might also want to come to the United States? Hearing it firsthand, I think, will help us all understand the context for what's going on. We'll understand the impact of what's going on right here in Southeast Michigan, which, of course, uh, is a place that's home to many, many more immigrants uh, than lots of other cities around this country. So we want to start our conversation today with Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. He is the health director for the city of Detroit, but he is here today uh, on vacation time uh, talking to us as just a citizen here, uh, one of the many people who lives here in Southeast Michigan. He is not representing the city in any way. He's here to tell a personal story. He's a trained medical doctor, of course, and his family came to the United States from Egypt as refugees. Abdul, uh, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me so much. I, I want to clarify, so my, my parents came under, under um, uh, political duress, uh, but, but they came, um, my, my dad actually, who immigrated in, in 78, came as a student. And so he was able to get a student visa to do his PhD actually right here at uh, Wayne State. Uh-huh. Um, so I just want to make sure that I don't mis- mis- um, misclassify. Sure. He, he came um, in, in somewhat different circumstances, although uh, he had been a student agitator. Um, uh-huh. And those were uh, deeply political times in Egypt and um, had been an agitator around democracy. He would tell the story uh, when I was a kid, about um, his his role. So after he graduated college, he was a, a really great student. Um, his his dad was a vegetable salesman. His mom illiterate. Uh, he grew up in a one bedroom apartment, um, the oldest of six kids, um, in the fish market area in Alexandria. Mm-hmm. And um, and he was able to make it out. I mean, a classic American dream was able to make it out because he graduated the top in his. Uh, high school class, got a really great opportunity to go to Alexander University, was again the top of his uh, college class, and then um, and then had these opportunities to do a PhD. But in the interim, while he was doing a master's in Egypt, um, he, uh, he started to ask himself questions about how it was that presidential elections were being won 99% to 1%. And um, <laughs> he tells us- so odd when that happens. Isn't it, right? Um, <laughs> I, think, uh, I think it's important always to ask ourselves- uh, how it is that things around us happen and how legitimate they are. And so he tells a story of uh, being among a group and um, some of the uh, political agitators uh, on the side of the party at the time had come to him with a ballot box and said, well, we want you to be the first the first to vote. Yeah. Um, and he said, well, that's that's great, except for they took the ballot box and broke it and realized that there were hundreds of thousands of votes in the box, thousands of votes already in the box in already. There. Yeah. And, um, and so um, he tells the story about uh, having left, come to the United States and uh, uh, within a couple of days of having come here, uh, he gets a call from his father back home telling him that the secret police were, were looking for him. Um, so he was somebody who, um, who I think came here under political circumstances that made it very clear that he had to leave uh, or risk being put in jail and, and uh, disappearing. Um, and uh, was also somebody who took advantage of a, a set of resources in this country um, that are not available elsewhere. The opportunity yeah. to, to to do a PhD, that is PhD in automotive engineering, and uh, he was between coming here and going to Germany. And um, so I often sort of reflect on this this German counterfactual of myself. Um, uh, <laughs> but uh, but chose to come to Detroit, and um, and that's why my family has roots here. And um, I'm very thank- thankful for that decision. I, I often went back to Egypt when I was a, a child, and I could 
uh, look at my life and the opportunities that I had through fantastic public education, through uh, options to, to, to get a subsidized college education at one of the greatest universities uh, in the world at the University of Michigan, um, the, the, the kinds of things you don't even talk about or think about, the, how is it that our infrastructure uh, supports our lives? And, and all of those things created opportunities for me um, that when I look at my cousins who are just as smart and just as capable and just as motivated and just as passionate, um, their lives are very, very different than mine. And, yeah. and that's because of a decision that my father made about the kind of life he wanted for me, he wanted for my siblings, he wanted for our family. Um, and uh, and I think I, I see the responsibility of paying that forward um, every day. Yeah. Um, if you're, Does your father talk about what he thinks might have happened if he had stayed in Egypt? Well, he, he, he doesn't really have to think about it. He can just look at the stories of the number of folks who stayed, um, people who were his colleagues uh, as, uh, as graduate students um, mm-hmm. in Egypt who were teaching, and what happened to them. Many of them disappeared and were never heard from again. Um, many of them had been in and out of jail uh, because of government crackdowns on political opposition. Um, and uh, you know, even uh, contemporaries of mine um, who... Uh, who you would think had made it out? Uh, a, a good friend uh, of mine, um, Mohammed Sultan, has a has a uh, well documented story. He was back in Egypt during the recent revolutions, um, and uh, was jailed and spent um, uh, a long, long time in Egyptian jail uh, simply because he has an Egyptian passport. Yeah. And um, you know, in my case, uh, there is it's unclear uh, whether or not I have um, Egyptian documents. And so, since the revolution, I haven't really been able to go back because. As a dual citizen, potentially, um, uh, I there is no right of extradition, and I have been vocal um, advocating around uh, the political situation there, and um, and that that creates circumstances sure. wherein if I were to go back, um, I potentially could could yield dire circumstances, and mm-hmm. so you know we don't really even have to think about what would happen. Um, it's pretty clear you what might have happened, and you know my dad has always been somebody who I admire for being as vociferous about his views um, as he feels he needs to be to create change. And, yeah. um, and I think had he stayed uh, as a leader of, of, of political agitation in that country, um, his life would have turned out substantially different and my life would have been the same. Yeah. Uh, of course, Egypt is not one of the seven countries uh, that made the list uh, that, that the president uh, put out last week uh, in terms of changing the policy with regard to immigration. Uh, that seems odd to a lot of people because of the very things that you describe here. I mean, Egypt is a place of, at least right now, of uh, some flux and unrest. Uh, there was It was part of the Arab Spring, uh, briefly had a uh, democratically elected government after that. Uh, that was overthrown uh, by the military, and now it's unclear. Uh, I think what direction it's headed. What does it? But what does it say to you that these other countries, uh, Iran, uh, Iraq, uh, Yemen, Syria, Sudan, Libya, and Somalia, are are, are on that list? Do you feel like uh, somehow they're Egyptians are somehow privileged in this? Uh, or do you feel the same weight of sort of the othering, I guess, that, that's taking place here? I, I would say that, um, you know, in a lot of ways, you raised a really great point um, at the outset here. Uh, what is it and why is it that certain countries made a particular list and certain countries didn't? And I think we, we have to be aware of the very complex political machinations um, that, that, uh, um, that go into making a decision like this. And, and with respect to Egypt, 
Um, it's a country that has had um, a lot of political tumult, um, yeah. but also a country that the United States has um, has you know invested militarily in uh, tremendously over the last thirty years, for better or worse. Mm-hmm. And um, and oftentimes you can point directly to uh, U.S. investments in the military and um, the the maintenance of powers that be. Um, oftentimes, the same powers that go after people like my dad. President um, Mubarak, for instance, uh, uh, was uh, supported very heavily by uh, the United States. Yeah, and it's no coincidence that um, General Sisi became President Sisi. And um, you, you look at the investment of the the Egyptian military in uh, in the economy uh, of, of Egypt and how vested it is, largely subsidized by American dollars. Um, and so I think, though, there is there's something to be said, and I want to really drill down to the human face of this. Um, I grew up in a, a very multi-ethnic Muslim community um, and have many friends who are some of my dearest friends who are either Libyan or Yemeni or Iraqi or Syrian. And, um, and, and they are people who take their American identity super seriously. I mean, all of us are. Like, I, 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 don't, I, I understand my Americanness in a way that, that I think is so... Forgive me for being a scientist, but but as a scientist, you often compare things, right? And right. I can compare my life as an American to what my life might have been had I not been American. I know exactly what this country has given me, and they do too. And there is something about this idea of America, about the the, the capacity to to come together um, in a melting pot to 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 create something that is greater than any of us could have been. Um, and that idea that unites us about a government for the people and by the people, about the capacity to be a part of something that's greater, about the, the, the American ideals um, that we strive for. Um, and in a lot of ways, I think what is so frustrating about this executive decision is that it's very clear that our leadership does not appreciate exactly what that means to people who have come here, who understand what their lives might have been in yeah. another circumstance. We take our Americanness really seriously. This notion that we are somehow less American because the color of our skin is a little bit different or we pray a different way, I think uh, one has to really contest that because we know exactly what this country has given us and um, and we want to give back. And, and many of us do in so many different ways. I mean, if you look at just the physician workforce in the United States, the estimates are something like one in five physicians are Muslims. The people who take care of you in your most vulnerable moments these are people who commit to the fact that they want to be here to service this country in a really fundamental way. Um, so we really have to check uh, the, the notes of racism and the notes of xenophobia that, that, that animate um, this idea that people from some countries are somehow less, uh, less capable of becoming American than others. Yeah. Uh, This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed. He is a trained medical doctor whose family came to the U.S. uh, from Egypt uh, under circumstances uh, that that would look a lot like uh, refugees. Uh, His dad came here as a student but was uh, in political disfavor in Egypt at the time. Uh, We are talking with people who are refugees. Uh, people who came to this country as refugees and their families uh, as a way of illuminating the personal side of President Trump's recent actions to change the way that America welcomes refugees from around the globe. Uh, if you have a comment uh, or want to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page uh, and put your comments there or go to Twitter. And hashtag uh, Detroit Today will work your comments into uh, 
the conversation. Kenneth on Facebook says, my entire family are refugees from Iraq. They came over in the late 90s. Uh, They tell me that the hardest part of coming here wasn't the journey itself, but the task of learning the language and adjusting to a completely foreign culture. Uh, Abdul, I think that is a wonderful insight that uh, the idea of leaving where you're from, leaving everything you know behind to go to a new place because it's where you feel safe, but that doesn't necessarily mean you feel welcome or at home right away. You have to work pretty hard to do that. Mm-hmm. I think I think it's really easy to discount um, uh, the experience of leaving everything you know. My dad tells a fantastic story uh, about one of his first days here um, where he walked into a McDonald's, like the quintessential uh, American fast food restaurant. Um, and in at that point, a very thick Egyptian asp- uh, 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 accent asked for baltatis, which is uh, Arabic for potatoes. And the, the two things sound kind of similar. And yeah, he just had this interchange <laughs> with this woman who just could not understand what he was saying. What do you want? Yeah, right? what, what is it that you want here? And, um, and, you know, my dad came here to do a PhD. Um, he's a, he's a, a very educated man who went on to, uh, to be, a, 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 I think, a well-acclaimed professor who's, who's trained uh, thousands of engineers in this country. Um, I think about, uh, you know, as, as the child of immigrants, what would what would it mean to me if somebody just lifted me out of the United States and you know sent me over to Germany where I don't know the language and said start over, um, as somebody who has two doctoral degrees and a tremendous amount of human capital and has had so much privilege, that would be really hard to do. Yeah, I don't. I wouldn't know where to start. And um, and this is the work that that these people are doing to be American, right? I mean, there there's work all of us do to be American. I think there is, um, especially in times like these, a moment where uh, you recognize that there is a call to duty. Uh, around protecting the Constitution and about what that means and about a way of life uh, that we hold dear. But these are people who are who are choosing because of the circumstances that they find themselves in. That's right. To do extra work to become American, to 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 dream and to aspire to be a part of that narrative. Um, and it's also something that's just so quintessentially American. I, I lived in New York before I came back home, and um, you go to this uh, tenement museum, which if you haven't been, I highly recommend. Um, and it's in the Lower East Side. And you see the ways that that immigrants from all over the world lived Live. in the first generations of their existence in the United States. Um, people who came here from Germany or from Ireland or from Italy. Um, the American narrative is an immigrant narrative. Um, and, uh, and we cannot forget that. And this is work that so many of us have done to be a part of this thing. Um, and when we then say that because of some... Uh, religious difference or some ethnic difference that some people are incapable um, of aspiring to be Americans. It says something fundamentally about that very notion of e pluribus unum, that out of many there can be one. Um, And when we start to exclude, uh, that I think becomes this moment where we ask ourselves, well, what does it mean to be American today? And what kind of work do we all collectively have to do to protect that American narrative, that American experience? Because the fact that you and I can sit across a table from each other and have a conversation about the same America, that place that we want to create together, I think says something. Yeah. And if I were Yemeni and you were Libyan, we would be having exactly the same conversation. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to get you to talk about uh, the distinctions that are try- that some people are trying to make here about why this is happening, for instance. And they're saying, well, it's not about the fact that these people are Muslim. Uh, it's not about the fact that these people are brown-skinned. It's about security. Uh, these are countries that threaten our security. Um, people from those countries threaten our security. When you hear that, mostly from the white majority, 
in this country, not everybody, but uh, certainly supporters of the president. What does that say to you? There are three points here, right? First, there has never been a terrorist attack on this homeland from somebody from any one of those countries. Right? None of the seven. Second, the greatest threat to American security is having forgotten what it is that we're fighting for in the first place. This idea that unites you and I in this conversation, that unites 350 million Americans uh, to aspire to being that country, that city on a hill, um, where anybody can work hard and achieve a, a, an American dream. Um, that's what unite, unites us. And when we forget what it is that we're fighting for, I, I worry about uh, the direction that we are headed. And then the last thing is that, you know, together, when we can come together um, as a people, the 350 million people of all shapes and sizes and colors and religions and abilities and sexualities, when we can come together for a thing, that's the moment that our security is the strongest. And insofar as we either explicitly or implicitly divide one another based on the way we look or the way we pray or the way we, we think about how we want to do our work in the world, that's that moment that we lose that unity. And that unity is the fundamental point of our security, which is founded on, on an ideal um, that we are chipping away at in the moment that we have a president who will sign an executive order that both says people from a particular part of the world cannot come here and says that if they want to come here, well, if they're Christian, we're, we're going to give them favor versus if they're Muslim, we're not. Yeah. Um, and what that does for the millions of Americans who are Muslim, it says you're a little bit less American today than you were yesterday yeah. because we would not have let you come here had we known what you are. And those Muslims, and I, and I can tell you as one of them, those Muslims believe in this country. That's the reason we're here. That's the reason uh, we fight every day to make this country a little bit better. We serve every day uh, in the ways that Americans serve to uphold that ideal. Um, that, that notion that we're a little bit less American to me is affrontive and to me is, is the source of, of what I think if there is something that would tarnish our American reputation and that ideal, it's that. Yeah. I think it's hard sometimes for people in the majority to understand that when you are part of an historically marginalized group, uh, you don't distinguish between types of discrimination. You don't distinguish between discrimination targeted at one person and not uh, another. That, that it's all too familiar for all of us that uh, this idea that somehow we're different, somehow we're not as deserving of the protections uh, that, that everyone else has in this country. And so uh, you say it's seven countries, they happen to be Muslim, quote unquote. Uh, you happen to say that uh, refugees from those places can't come here. I think it's really easy to imagine uh, if you're part of a population that has seen that happen to you in the past, that you might be next. Mm -hmm. I think um, you know, the, the, um, America has struggled with this idea of race uh, since its inception. I mean, there's no way to, to, to disaggregate uh, our present from a history um, that uh, was built on the bondage of millions and millions of people who were brought here um, without choice. And uh, and racism has taken many forms um, in, in this country. And I think what we have to appreciate is racism is about division. It's about creating classes of kinds of people who can be more or less American. I mean, I mean the, the historical tidbit that we have to remember is this three-fifths compromise, that mm -hmm. people of African descent were, were three-fifths human. Not fully human. Not fully <laughs> human, exactly. And, and our effort to create unity, which I think is the, 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 the wellspring of strength for our country, implies that we together, whether or not you are from historically marginalized communities or not, have to fight for 
um, the the implicit dignity and humanity of everyone. Yeah. Um, it whether, doesn't come automatically. It doesn't come automatically. It is it is something that we have fought for uh, from the beginning. So I, as a Muslim Arab American, uh, Egyptian American, um, I see my fight for my own um, dignity and humanity as being the same fight that I would fight on your behalf as an African American and on behalf of the 600,000 African Americans in the city. Um, because it is about creating a wholeness um, and equity about the experience of America for everyone that I think is the wellspring of our unity, the wellspring of our strength, and the wellspring of our security. Yeah. Uh, quickly, uh, I want to take a phone call before we let you go. Thomas is calling from Detroit and a very special place in Detroit, Freedom House, uh, which is a place that helps refugees from around uh, the planet uh, come to this country and uh, find their way uh, in in this nation. Uh, Thomas, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Go ahead. So, yes, uh, I work here for Freedom House here in Detroit. We've been here for 34 years. And for these 34 years, we have been upholding what's at the base of the Statue of Liberty and welcoming those yearning to breathe free. Um, you know, the Refugee Act of 1970, excuse me, 1980 outlines and accepts the international definition of a refugee. Right. And as such, part of that is welcoming asylum seekers. And so we at Freedom House work with people who enter the United States valid valid visa through the port of entry, seek out our assistance. And then we help them navigate the legal process, provide them with these social services um, to help them uh, deal with with the trauma that they've endured. Ninety five percent of our residents are survivors of torture, um, you know, fleeing countries and situations that we as a country stand opposed to, right? War and violence and persecution. And so to welcome them here is part of our, um, what makes us a rich country and upholds our American values. And, um, you know, I'm also sad to report that recently we received news from HUD that um, our contract is not being renewed. And so as a result of that, it's 60% of our funding. And so, you know, we are in um, troubling times trying to figure out what our next steps are. Yeah. Yeah. Thomas, I'm glad you called, uh, told us about what Freedom House does. Uh, it's an institution I'm pretty familiar with uh, and, and very proud of, uh, proud that it's part of the city of Detroit. But I'm distressed to hear that uh, that, that HUD grant uh, is going to be curtailed. So that's something we're all going to have to figure out a way to make up for because there is absolutely no way Freedom House should uh, should go away. So I appreciate uh, I appreciate the call, uh, Abdul. Uh, thank you very much for being here on Detroit Today and telling the story. I appreciate you um, allowing me to be part of this story, and I appreciate you highlighting uh, this this challenge in these times. Um, I don't think uh, I, I I do believe in this American ideal. I do believe that we get beyond this, but I believe that we get beyond this because there are people who commit. Uh, to being a part of uh, of American wholeness, regardless of yeah. race, color, creed. Well, uh, you know, in the column I wrote in the Free Press on Sunday, the, the the last idea I put in there was that America is an idea more than anything else, and that idea uh, uh, survives; it can persist even when the person in charge of it. Uh, is contravening it, but it only survives if those of us who know what that idea is give it voice and articulation and resist. Yeah. The uh, 350 million of us are America, absolutely. Not uh, not the person. Not in the White one House. person. That's and right. 
All right. Uh, thanks very much again for being here. Uh, coming up next, we're going to talk about trade wars with economist Dean Baker. What is a trade war? What does that look like? And are we headed for one given the things that President Donald Trump has done in his first few weeks? Stay with us on Detroit Today. Today. 